my daughters are like above the things that I do for a living. Um, and the idea there is that my ceiling is their floor. And welcome to the 19th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. A little bit of housekeeping before I dive in. Did you know that Pine Copper Lime has a newsletter with print news from around the world? I spend a couple hours every month on this print news roundup, and I just realized I have probably never mentioned it on this show. So I'm putting a link in this week's show notes, or you can just find it by going to pinecopperlime.com and clicking connect at the top of the page. And of course, I promise I won't share your contact information with anyone ever, anytime. Although, if you've been using that face aging app, you're pretty much fucked anyway. Skynet, Big Brother, Animal Farm, you get the idea. And speaking of ways to connect, these past weeks, Pine Copper Lime has picked up a couple of new Patreon supporters. And I'm not even kidding, y'all. I honestly, truly happy cry a little bit whenever this happens. It's just incredible to know that there are people out there who say, I could get this content for totally free, but you know what? I'm going to throw a couple dollars PCL's way to show my support. All you Patreon supporters are amazing. You're the real heroes. You're the real MVPs. Each one of you has personally made me happy cry a little bit. So thank you so very much from myself and my new mic, Mikey. Mikey the mic. You're killing it at keeping printmaking forever, shunning those non-believers, and joining this party. I also just finished up my Instagram giveaway today, so one lucky winner has gone home with a stunning large-scale etching. But don't despair if you missed out. I have plenty more giveaways on the horizon, so make sure you're following PCL on the gram, and like always, link in the show notes. One last little bit, I gotta plug the PCL online print gallery, because I'm adding a few more works from some of the most popular artists this week, so make sure to be on the lookout for those. Okay, my guest this week is Ben Moynos, a Dallas-based printmaker who I invited to come speak about his monumental woodcut series, which is each eight feet high by four feet wide. That's two and a half meters by one and a quarter meters for all of you in those metric lands. The prints themselves chronicle his family's history of immigrating to the United States from Mexico with the hope of providing a better life for their children. It's aptly named The Endless Endeavor. So, while I thought this is what we were going to talk about, and don't worry, we do, we ended up talking about so much more. Ben offered fantastic insights into what it takes to make a living as a working artist, so I think this episode will be an important lesson, and a fun lesson, for anyone who's beginning to think seriously about their art career. So, if you like what you hear, please share it with a friend or fellow printmaker. Alright, without further ado, here's Ben. Hey, Ben, how's it going? It's going good. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining me live from the apocalypse in Dallas. Yes. Yeah. So there's power out all over the city. So um, did you say you're at at a library right now trying to get some Wi-Fi? I'm literally nowhere. I'm (laughs) in a parking lot because in addition to there being no pockets of power out when the wind blew, branches came and they hit like phone things. So I think cell towers are down. So oh my certain areas of town have like one bar and some have like four. So so this is the first ever parking lot episode of Pine Copper Lime. But I'm super excited to, to have you on and to chat about some things. And if we hear any cars in the background or anything, we'll just we'll just think of it as, as white noise. So thank you yeah. for, for your dedication to coming on. No problem. So yeah, so I knew your work really from 
the internet because that's where all things live. And then I had this, the funny situation of meeting you in person in Dallas, which I touched on before. I knew Kirsten Flaherty, who knew Marco Sanchez, who knew you. And yet (laughs) the only one of us who'd ever met in person before was me and Kirsten. (laughs) But thanks to the magic of the internet, we ended up, well, actually you ended up saving us from uh, being stuck somewhere because of downed buses. And we all had a nice drive in traffic together. Yeah. In my car with no AC. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I just definitely was like, ah, here's someone who's doing interesting work and is good at talking about it. I need to have him on the podcast. So why don't we just begin at the beginning? And I'd love to hear about just you introducing yourself. I am Ben Munoz. I live in Dallas, Texas. And I am a relief printmaker. And you're a working artist, that's correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I always, so that sounds, has that vague sound like it's kind of a euphemism, but I suppose what I mean by that yeah. is just. No, I'm uh, a working artist, all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that, um, you know, you're, you're, not, uh, you're not doing a day hustle, you're working, selling your work, doing commissions, and paying bills with it, which is amazing. So tell me a little bit about where you grew up and if you always had been interested in art making or what role art had in your childhood, if you had artistic family members or were taken to museums or none of the above. What was that like for you? I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is way down south. It's about six, maybe seven hours south of Dallas. It's this really cool little beach city right on the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, it's got a big printmaking scene, a decent art scene. And uh, I, I think it's just a good place to be raised. It's like a kind of beachy town. But I wasn't, none of my family is like super into the arts, uh, at least growing up. Um, and I wasn't taken to a lot of museums or anything like that. And I don't think that I even knew I wanted to do art until I got to college. And I had kind of always drawn a little bit, um, like, but more like doodled. And I thought like, well, I'll, I'll kind of pursue that, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. And uh, so I, it, I'd say that my art, journey or whatever didn't really start until college really I I didn't even take art in high school so I was I wouldn't say I had a big interest in it or anything the interest kind of once I started I I found like printmaking was one of the I think I took printmaking my first semester and I just immediately fell in love with it oh god I love it and so it was sort of printmaking kind of brought you to to being an artist it seems like oh yeah and you know what's funny is that I used to paint and there was like a year where I publicly was going around like, oh, no, I'm a painter. Like, I don't even like printmaking is whatever. Like, <laughs> I'm going to be a painter. And uh, that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Did you were you falling into the uh, the old trope that, you know, printmaking is uh, it's on paper, it's multiples. Is it is it really a serious art? Uh, I don't think I ever bought into that. Good, I, my, good. I'm at the risk of sounding arrogant. I am a pretty good painter. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm a better painter than I am a printmaker in my head. In my opinion, I'm a much better painter. Um, so I was like, well, I'm going to do what I'm best at. You know, uh-huh. I'm going to find a better painter. Why don't I paint? Fast forward to now, I think that I'm the only one who thinks I'm a better painter than I am a printmaker because the galleries that represent me won't take a painting if it's free. Like they're, they're like, no, we want your friends. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, but part of that is, you know, that once once a gallery, like, has a market for an artist, they, yes. you know, it's that it's that whole, that, that constant conflict that comes to artists and their galleries and that commercial side of things, which is just, once it's sort of captured this idea of that this is what this individual does... You know, mm-hmm. you're locked in and it, it doesn't matter if you were doing that at 28 and now you're 68. You know, your yeah. gallery is going to push back on you about changing and, and evolving or you're allowed to change, but just just not too much. You know, it's this yeah, really... gradually. Let's, let's slowly kind of inch them into it. Yeah. and um... Or you could just go to the side of the U.S. for a gallery. Right. Like the East Coast. <laughs> give them paintings i wonder if that's really the only way to, to work around it is just have multiple galleries for the multiple sides of what you want to do but my god galleries are not 
very fit right now. So even finding a gallery or two to take on your work can be challenging enough, let alone five galleries for the five sides of what you're interested in doing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, it's kind of, I mean, you know this better than anybody is. It's really about, I think, self-marketing and like self-publicizing. And I've talked myself into so many rooms <laughs> that, that I really shouldn't have been in somehow people entertain me way longer than they should you know it's not always whoever's the most talented that's going to get this i know so many artists that are like ridiculously talented but they won't make it because they're not businessmen and there's an actual business side of art that if you don't get it will beat you into nothing and you'll Mm -hmm. give up you'll stop making work if you don't understand that this is a business and you need to make money to survive you won't be able to sustain yourself yeah and i know that that you're you're really great at documentation of your work and at being a communicator, you know, which I think is huge when it comes to the visual arts. And your Instagram always got something new, something interesting on it. And were you always kind of a good talker, a good communicator, good at making pitches? Or was this something that you you had to learn when you realized you wanted to make a living as an artist? First of all, it's very flattering that you think that I'm good at this. So I think you are, you. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think my mom and my, my father are both like public figures. My mom runs a community center in Corpus Christi called oh. UCF Community Center. So she's always done like balls and galas and, you know, got up there and talked. And the mayor's there and the commissioner. And like, I mean, every, everybody is like randomly there and, and like important people and they donate a lot of money and she'll get like, it's, it's a very funded thing. So she's always been kind of in the public. So I kind of catch sides of that and everything. My father's the same way. And so I, if you're raised around that, I think you're more likely to be forcefully mm-hmm. thrust into a spotlight. My mom would be like, hey, introduce me at this or hey, say this or that. So when you grow up public speaking and you grow up meeting people that you can't embarrass yourself in front of, I think that you become kind of tailored to that. And it's affected my family in a, in a positive way. My my little brother is a really talented musician. I mean, he's an excellent guitar player. And he like got a full ride through college just playing guitar. Uh, he's got picked up and he's like touring with a band right now, like a big band, playing like all through Europe and they're gonna finish at Carnegie Hall. Yeah, he's like 21, like, and he's playing Carnegie Hall. That's insane. My older brother too, I mean, he's a lighting technician um, and he works at the AT&T Stadium over here and like, you know, program stuff and like does all of that. And it's funny because earlier I told you that my parents aren't very artsy, but somehow we all ended up in the arts doing totally. something. Was there art encouraged? I mean, it sounds like, I guess. Oh, I, totally. Yeah, because I'm thinking, you know, when I think of family that's, you know, has the mayor come to your parties, like <laughs> I, I definitely would associate that with you know, a family that's going to encourage interest in all aspects of life, including art. Yeah. My my parents were ridiculously supportive, like mm. supportive in a way that was almost borderline irresponsible. <laughs> like my little brother came home one day and he was like, I'm going to play baseball. And my dad was like, OK, like, why not? This kid's a senior in high school. That's not when you start baseball. Right. Like you learn baseball like as a kid. Yeah. You play t-ball and other stuff. So my dad's like, all right, well, he's going to play baseball. So he goes out. And my little brother's like, I need all this stuff to play because he doesn't have anything. He wants to try it for the team. He doesn't have a glove or anything. Oh. So my dad goes and gets him all of this stuff. And uh, he sucks, obviously. I hope he doesn't <laughs> listen to this. He was so bad. My dad, but my dad was just like, he didn't think twice about it. He's like, okay, you want to do this? Yeah. Let's, let's do it right then. But he was very supportive. I mean, we were by no means like a wealthy family. So for him to go out and get all of that stuff, I mean, that's kind of a big deal. And he would always support us and encourage us. And even if we came home and tried to quit something, he'd be like, you should really keep going. And you should really like just give it your all until the end of the season. And like give it your all until the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And that mentality really stuck with me. This idea of like, don't quit, just keep going. And I, and I think about art like that a lot because there's only a finite number of people that are really going to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people are going to stop making work. I, I read something the other day that said that uh, I think only like 10% of like the graduates in the United States end up being a full-time artist. So you're really fighting to stay in that 10%. And I think about it like the most important thing is to just not quit. It's like you're running a race. And if everybody else quits around you, eventually, if you just don't stop running, you'll be one of those last people in that 10%. Yeah. And that was really part of that mentality of my father like and my mother being like, don't quit, keep going. You need to just 
see it out. You never know how good you're going to get. You suck right now, but everybody sucks right now. You know, just yeah. keep, keep going. And, and then eventually you can, you know, ride your bike or do a backflip or whatever they were trying to say. Well, I think that I've seen in the last, I don't know, five, ten years, kind of a rash of these sociological studies and books that come out that the theme of them all is raw talent isn't what makes or breaks success in any field. Yeah. It's grit. It's yeah, just, yeah. it's just, are you willing to push through any of the dips? Are you willing to come back after you've had a really rough crit on your work? Those are the people who, who make it. And there's, I think there's even a book called Grit. There's a, a book called The Dip that kind of has the same idea that's just sort of about every project, every endeavor in life, you know, has that. And it's like, do you, the, that's sort of what separates those who stay and become artists or musicians or top engineers or whatever it is versus people who don't. It's just keeping at it. I've had a lot of conversations with people who are really talented and they're kind of just frustrated with the art world. Because, I mean, you know how it is, like, because you were in it. It's kind of who you know and it's kind of like being seen and it's kind of just being trying to keep yourself relevant and there's 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 like definitely a social part of it mm-hmm. and a lot of artists are like introverts and they don't really like that that's very unattractive to them so i'll he'll hear people kind of talk about like oh well this whole thing is rigged and it's not necessarily like whoever's the most talented it's like whoever's got the connections and then this and that and, da, da, da. and i was like that should be encouraging to you because if it was whoever was the most talented that made it none of us would make it <laughs> nobody would make them you're not the most talented person. I'm not like none of us are because it's like yeah. connections and get out like, you know, getting out there and, and just being a decent human being and like being friendly and all totally. of this stuff. Like, that, that should be encouraging. It shouldn't be like a, oh, well, you know, the most talented people never make it. Like it's not it's not like talent is important, but it's not the most important thing. And mm-hmm. that should be that should be encouraging because if it was all about like the best printmakers making it, I would never have made it. Like I'm nowhere near the best printmaker. It's I I love that that outlook on it because I I really am often you know a little bit of two minds about it because it's like I completely agree with you is that so much of the quote unquote making it or your success in the art world, however it's defined, but that's usually you could take the metric of who comes to the opening and how many pieces get sold for instance or something like that and everything that leads up to that right so like who gets that invitation to even have those walls in that public space with a gallery that's good at promotion you know all of these different things to get the work seen to get it sold to get it into collections however you're looking at it you know it it is very um very much about connections and your ability to be an advocate for yourself and to communicate. Sometimes I'm like, oh, like, is that, does that suck? I don't know because, but you know, cause it's, but then it's sort of like, what does it even mean to be a good artist? Like, like, (laughs) you know, cause it's like, I think we've all moved beyond, well, it's whoever can draw a horse the best. Uh, (laughs) Like, I think that'd be funny though. None like of everybody us graduates like one horse everybody yeah. one horse <laughs> give me your best and i'll decide who can continue yeah and there certainly are certain schools out there and you know both in the literal sense of a school as in like the university where people go to study and schools as in schools of thought that that would say no no it's the horse who draws the horse the best they're the best artist um yeah but most everyone i know i think would be somewhere in the middle is that you don't Ideally, we don't have someone who's just producing something that shit getting all of these sort of art resources because they have connections. And by shit, I don't mean like he can't, he or she can't draw. I mean, like, they're making drivel, they're making things that are derisive, they're making things that are offensive, you know, anything like that, um, or just meaningless. But also... I don't care how well you can draw a horse. If you're a total asshole, I don't want to come to your exhibition. And I think that's fine, too. I had a professor one time tell me something that were like really, <clears throat> it really opened my eyes because um, he was talking about, I, I was really focused on drawing the best horse I could. Mm-hmm. I, that was my goal. I was like, I want this to, I was talking about my paintings. I was like, I want these paintings to be as realistic as possible. 
and I was just painting and painting and painting like the same thing over and over and mm. over, trying to make it look as real as possible. And uh, he was watching the progress of it. And then finally he came up to me and he said, why are you doing this? Like, why, why this? And I was like, oh, it just has a lot of interesting values and I just want to see if I can make it look real. And he was like, but what's the point of it? Why are you doing this? Mm. Uh, and he was like, even if you could get this to look so real, like really, really real, if there's no substance, if there's nothing behind it, and he's like, it's like, it's like meeting a really attractive person who's just the worst human being in the world. <laughs> right. Like, you know, it ha- you have to have some depth beneath that. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you about the art scene in Dallas, because it is a city that I feel like has a lot of support for the arts. You know, when I was working at the gallery in Seattle, I had some great collectors in Dallas. I had people from Dallas who would come to Seattle and always come see me. And I think part of that is obviously that there's just there's money there. But at the same time, I don't know that people associate it as being a particularly progressive city. So what's that balance like? When I first moved to Dallas, I felt like I was in a Sims simulation because it was just a <laughs> bunch of people with T-shirts and jeans, and like walking, just going about their day with like a smoothie in their hand. It's different from where I'm from, but it's also strangely familiar because every place in Texas feels kind of familiar. But there, there is like, like you said, there is a lot of money. Today, uh, I had an opening with like this group show and I went to this place called the Eisman. Really nice building. I mean, it's a stupid nice building. It's, it's nice. And... I went into, I, I ran into this guy, uh, Chuck, who is a, he's a stone carver. Um, and I've, I've taken a stone carving class with him. He's a super nice, like retired man. And uh, I saw him, I was like, hey, Chuck, how's it going? Da, da, da. And we talked for a little bit. You know, Chuck works on like Onyx and stuff like that. Chuck leaves. And then I run into Art, who's the teacher who taught the stone carving class. And I'm talking to him and he was like, oh, did you see Chuck? And I was like, yeah, within talking to him, I find out that Chuck his real name is Charles Eisman, like the guy who the building is named after. He donated mi- like tens of millions of dollars and they built this big arts space and named it after him. He's a multimillionaire <laughs> and I had no idea. He was just carving and That's how common millionaires are in Dallas. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. They're everywhere. I've never, it's, so there's a lot of money here. Uh, and like Dragon Street, are you familiar with Dragon Street? It's where all the galleries are in Dallas. Well, it's, it's where a lot of them are in the design district. So you can go down Dragon Street. And I mean, there are several really big galleries there just on that street. But you go there and I mean, there's on, on opening nights, because the galleries kind of have openings that correlate with each other. Mm-hmm. You can see like Maseratis and like, mm. you know, really lined up. And it's like, man, there's people with a lot of money and, and work sells here. Like I never saw it sell where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And just the market, it's like you're saying there's a lot of collectors here and yeah. I see work that I've never, I've never seen something like, I've never seen a gallery that has work for thirty, sixty thousand $60,000 and it's all being sold that night. I mean, it's, it's, it's flying, it's flying. People are buying it and collecting it and, and you can walk through and like half the gallery is sold and it's opening night. You know, that show's going to run longer. It, that's being here really opened my eyes to the idea of like, okay, I cannot just survive, but I can make a living. Like, mm-hmm. I can do this. And that's really hard to do if you're somebody like me and you're from a city that's small and you don't see that because then it just sees, it seems almost like a dream. But then if you put yourself in the thick of it, you can look around and be like, oh, this isn't a dream, it's happening. And it's happening for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And why not me? So what do you think it is about the, the culture of Dallas that combines the means but also the want to purchase art? Because... You know, Seattle, it's famous for having extremely wealthy people in it. We don't have a state income tax in the state of Washington. Oh, well. So that is why the richest people in America enjoy living there. But I would never describe the Seattle art scene in terms of its robustness in, this, in the same way that you described the Dallas art scene. So what would you say that makes it so great that you have people who are wanting to be patrons with the millions that they have? I don't really know the answer to that. I don't have like a formula, but I, I, I would imagine, you know, it's kind of an investment opportunity if you buy the work of people, you know, it's going to be worth more money soon, especially if you can saturate the market. A lot of you and all of your friends can agree to make this guy's career by buying like 30 of his pieces. Right. And then you've just put them, you, you, you've given him the means to live for the next maybe five years if he was selling work for like 
you know, $80,000 and you buy all of his work, he's set up now. So he's going to be, he's going to stand the test of time now, at least for a decade, if he's smart and budgets that money. So now he's going to continue to make work. His work sells. So he's going to have no problem having shows because galleries want to, they want to make that money mm -hmm. and they know that his work sells. So he's going to be able to put the work in the galleries. It's going to continue to sell because you and your initial 30 friends bought it. Now everybody else is buying it because they know it's selling and they want to collect it. Mm -hmm. So they're going to collect it. They're going to hold on to it. And then those initial 30 guys that made that investment in that kid, they now have his original works and it's going to sell for four, maybe five times what he paid for it. Mm -hmm. And it's a big investment. So, I mean, it's possible that that's it. And I don't want to sound negative, like that that's the only reason people buy art. No, I don't think so. It's, it, it's possible uh, to be doing both, right? Investing and purchasing oh, something that you love. Yeah. There's people here who have collections that they're never going to sell. I mean, yeah. I I met this guy, um, John. He, he teaches at um, the CAC here in Dallas. And he was telling me that there's a guy who lives here. I forget his name. But he's got, like, blue chip, like, artists, like, big, 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 you know, like, heavy-hitting names that it's just like, how on earth do you put your hands on that? And he's got work that he's he's never going to sell it. You know, mm -hmm. he loves it. And he wants to have it. And he uh, lo he loans it to museums so that they can see it. And then, you know, he's not selling it. He has it and he loves it. And I think that, that there's also a, a big part of that. And then in addition to that, for printmakers, there is so much support among the 20-something, 30-somethings that, that are going oh, to show that, yeah, the show that you and your friends put on in this warehouse um, and your work is like, $60, you know, $80. Mm -hmm. People are coming out and they're buying it and they're going home and they're putting it on their walls instead of like the Ikea stuff. You know, they're buying prints and they're buying paintings and the stuff that you and your friends, you, you can have a show here and uh, people come out and you could, I mean, sell everything. That's not, a, that's not uncommon for people to come and support their friends and just support the arts too. I've had people come through and buy work and I don't know them. They just know that I live here and that's enough for them. I love that. And this is, of course, a huge question that you may or may not know the answer to. But what advice would you give to someone who is hearing this and saying, my God, I want that where I'm from? Like, how do you cultivate that sense of support among the 20 or 30 somethings who, who don't want a like misty photo of the Eiffel Tower above their yeah. sofa? Again, I'm, I can't give you like an ABC formula, mm -hmm. but I can tell you some things that like where I'm from in Corpus, there are so many talented people and they're just, there's not enough spaces for them to show work. Hmm. Where I'm from, there are literally like four galleries and that's it for like the city. And if you have four galleries, they're not going to give, traditionally, they're not going to give wall space up to guys who are selling prints for $40, yeah. which is what the people are going to buy. So I think that, and especially this isn't uncommon at all for if you're from a city that's not Seattle, not San Francisco, you're combating this idea of all the kids going like, this place sucks, bro. You know, like, <laughs> I hate it here. There's no, yeah, there's no art, yeah. no this or that. So you have to, it's hard for people to support local stuff if they don't like where they live. And mm -hmm. I think the main thing to combat and to fight is to be like, hey, this is a beautiful place. And these are the great things about it. And, and I think that's the main thing is it. People like, I've, I've encountered a lot of people that maybe necessarily don't like living in Dallas, but they like living in Oak Cliff, which is like a neighborhood of Dallas. Mm -hmm. They like living in, maybe they like Richardson a lot, or they like, you know, North Dallas. They like, you know, these pockets, these areas, Deep Ellum, right? Like Deep Ellum is yeah. huge in Dallas. If, if, if you live there, you support artists from Deep Ellum. Mm -hmm. And it's just that pride and that, that like, oh, I want to support what's happening in this community because I don't want it to stop. So I think having that, community i think building the community and then giving them something to support if, if they want to support it and they want to keep it going and, and stuff like that but it's also important to note that like i don't know what i'm doing like <laughs> don't listen to me like this could all be i'm doing okay right now but this could all be over in 10 years like in 10 years i could burn out and i could be in it somewhere so what do i know <laughs> but i think i do think what you're saying about that connection between pride of place and supporting artists, that is significant because when I was working in Seattle at a, at a printmaking gallery there, we would often get people coming in specifically requesting Seattle-based artists. And mm. sometimes that was because they were from Seattle, but often it was because they were visiting. And there are people who are buying art 
as a form of tourism as as you know uh, as a way to bring something back that reminds them of their trip that's going to be so much more significant to them i don't know than a keychain with a space needle on it or something and and so there's something to that that i haven't ever necessarily done a lot of thinking about but could be worth a deep dive at some point that connection between art and place and where an artist is from and they wouldn't necessarily be looking for like you know i want an artist who's doing the space needle it could be they could be doing anything so as we touched on and where kind of all of the conversation thus far has been about is kind of part and parcel of you being a working artist as we said and you know and kind of all of that so the the scene that you're in and making connections and all of that so you do that but then you also run casa press is that correct with your wife yeah so casa press like saves my life almost (laughs) every month it's i'm super fortunate to really have it and basically what it is is we block print on t-shirts you know that old chestnut we do that um but we really we noticed that it's sold I mean, and if something sells, why not do it more? We didn't want to do it live. I noticed that they weren't interested in seeing it printed live. They just wanted the shirt. They wanted to say, oh, it's block printed and da 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 da. And I was like, well, I can do that. So mm-hmm. I took, I think I, I think I started with like five designs. And I had a friend who just opened up a, like an apparel store downtown. And I grew up skating. So all of my clothes and everything that I bought was always from skate shops. Um, mm-hmm. So I was really into that culture and like that, really that underground subculture of buying like, you know, anti-hero stuff and like Hal Peralta and all that, all that stuff. So that's where I went to buy my clothes and he was opening up a shop and I was like, hey, can I put some shirts in here and, you know, maybe put this block that you could explain that how it's made and it's different and stuff like that. So I put them in there and uh, he did a really strong sales and I was like, oh, that's cool. So then I started to do, you know, give him more and, and try different designs and local, make them more local to the city that he's in. And then from there, we went to another store and then another store and the company has kind of grown. And now we have a shop in Fort Worth, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Corpus Christi and Santa Fe, New Mexico. Beautiful. Yeah, we produce enough shirts to stock all of those. Um, And it only takes like two or three days. It's like two or three days of block printing shirts. We fold them up, you know, we make them look really nice and package them up and send them off. And uh, with most of the shops, we do consignment deals. Some of them we wholesale if they're too far to, you know, do a count and restock and everything like that. But yeah, that's, it's all block printed stuff. And uh, my work is you have to buy the print or like look on Instagram. So it's different when I can print it on a shirt and then somebody wears it. It's like a walking billboard and I can just put whatever I'm trying to communicate through my work on this shirt and they're going to like walk around with it. It's really interesting. I've been to cities like I've been downtown San Antonio and I've seen people wearing the clothes. Hmm. It's like a Calavetta with two flyers that's talking about like the end of the world and like something else. And I'm just like, wow, this is this is crazy. Like that's that's what I'm trying to say. And this guy's just walking around saying it for me. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. He has no idea who I am. Body because he liked it and he's yeah. walking around. So I mean, you know, I I had a um a really great chat with Elizabeth Jean Yance. Uh, the other day that she's going to be on the podcast as well. And one of the things we talked about is that she has her, you know, quote unquote, fine art practice, which I I can probably hear me rolling my eyes when I say that just because I think it's all, you know, I mean, it's all just artificial hierarchy, you know, that's like, if it's on paper, it's fine art. If it's on a t-shirt, it's craft, you know, that's just insanity um but for lack of a better term she has her fine art practice and then she has something called mustard beetle which is t-shirts and home goods and that kind of thing too and i think that's something that printmaking really affords artists which is really neat is that because it has that quote-unquote again craft side of it you can kind of double dip and you can take advantage of really all aspects of it and have it be a little bit different and make that step towards being financially solvent through your art the way a painter may not have that same option. No, yeah, totally. It's it's this and it's the same block too that helps me a lot because my addition for, you know, some of the the smaller prints that uh, I know you've seen them the little like these Bonshaw Live series. They're they're pretty they're relatively simple woodcuts. There's no background, they're just something that I wanted to say real quick and tear it out. Mm-hmm. And I can I'll sell those for like 
I don't know, $25 a print because I'll run an edition of like 70. Yeah. But once that edition is done, I can continue to print them on shirts for like as long as whenever. And nobody's ever said anything. No one's been like, hey, that's not right. Or mm-hmm. I, I have a problem because I own your print. It, it's just, you know, I'll, I'll run them over and over and over. And then maybe I'll get tired of the design and then I'll throw it. I'm producing maybe two or three new ones every month to keep it fresh and get new product into the shops. But that's pretty much what Casa Press is. And does Casa Press have a separate internet presence? You know, uh, you're hitting on something really interesting. Because uh. if I was a more professional, I would do that. But <laughs> it takes a lot of time. I'm at this weird point in my career where I need to decide what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, because if I want to really grow Casa Press anymore, it de- it's going to demand more of my time. But at the same time, I have a body of work that I'm showing right now. And I'm in the- I have three solo shows this year. I have countless group shows and, and all I have artist talks and all kinds of stuff that is demanding my time. Uh, my wife and I are going to like three different states mm. in a few months. And we have like an install and artist talk and, and Echo Mono. It's a gallery down there. And that's the Endless Endeavor, which mm-hmm. is like this big installation, like mural project thing that I did. So I don't have the time to pour into it that I should. So because of that, I'm hesitant to make an Instagram, a separate yeah. website. Yeah. If I make a separate website, I'm scared that orders are going to pour in <laughs> and I'm not going to have the time to keep up with it. Yeah. And I just don't know what I'm doing, Miranda. I have no idea <laughs> what I'm doing. I'm just, I just want to print, you know? Yeah. I just want to live life. But I've, I've, I used to have one. The short answer. I used to have mm-hmm. a separate Instagram. I was horrible at running two Instagram accounts. Mm. So what I'm probably going to do is just put, like on the hang tags of all the products, I'm probably just going to put like the at sign of my regular Instagram. You can get the shirts on my website. On my website, you can go to it and they're available, but I'm pretty positive in the next few days, I'm going to take that down Mm. because the traffic in the shops, we sell a stupid amount of product on my website. I sell like five shirts a month. That's Mm -hmm. very inconvenient. Totally get it. Cause five is like, that's just, that's just, especially when, you've got so much else going on that's just not enough you know like that's just not enough to keep it it's inconvenient is what it is so I was telling my wife like I really think that we need to I I need to take this year and I need to figure out what I'm doing like career-wise and and what are my goals I think that's something that's really important the other day I sat down and I I wrote out what I wanted my legacy to be as an artist at the Mm. end of my life what do Mm -hmm. I want to accomplish what do I want to leave behind who do I want to help who do I want to empower what what do I want people to say about me when I'm gone what what do I want to accomplish and I think it's good to write that out so that I can begin to make steps towards that and I'm not just aimlessly surviving I think that's huge and really smart because it is easy just to focus on surviving and drifting when you're in the arts and just like day-to-day stuff and kind of lose track of that big picture. So speaking of the big picture and the Endless Endeavor series that you touched on, I really want to talk about that um, before we sign off, kind of have that be like the last thing we chat about. I would love to just hear you talk about First, just for people who aren't familiar with it, just sort of physically and aesthetically what it is. And then we can maybe talk about the iconography as well. Okay. So like you said, I have the blocks installed at the Art Center of Corpus Christi. And those are the people who commissioned it. They were really, really awesome. They gave me the opportunity to carve the story, the history of my family, like from my eyes. So for the most part, it doesn't include anybody that I never met. Um, So it starts with my grandfather because I never met anyone beyond that. So it starts with him and then it ends with my two daughters. And it's the first panel is talking about my grandfather. And he came here illegally when he was, um, I think he was like 19 or something like that. Um, So it starts with him coming here, working hard and making a life and his family and everything like that. And then it runs down to to my daughters. Um, That's where it ends. There are woodcuts. There are six of them. Each one of them is eight feet high by four feet wide. Yeah, the, the images are stacked to symbolize the idea that each generation works hard to elevate the next generation. Yeah, one generation can reach things that were out of, you know, just really out of reach for previous generations. You work really hard to lift your children. And I kind of did the same thing. My The last one with my daughters, my daughters are like above the things that I do for a living. So the imagery at the bottom is what I do and how I'm making a living. And on top of that, 
are these teddy bears that represent my daughters. Um, and the idea there is that my ceiling is their floor and I'm going to work really hard. And wherever I finish off, they get to start from and they get to continue and go for it. And, and there's, there's a lot of things that I'd like to do that realistically, I'm just not going to be able to because mm-hmm. of where my life is. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm 25 years old and realistically there's things I won't be able to accomplish. And I want my daughters to go through that. There's, there's bridges that I want to like build and things that I want to knock down that they'll be able to just walk right through. Mm. And I think that that's really important. And not enough people think like that, especially in the younger generation. We're very selfish people. Um, all of us are. I mean, I am everybody. And it's important. Once I had my daughter, I was able to look at her and realize like, oh my God, like I'm just a part of a larger thing. It's not about me. It's not about anything. Like I'm mm. just mm-hmm. a person. I'm just another one of these millions of people who have like lived and died and you know, it's, it's about her now. Now that I have her, it's what can I do to better her life? How can I, how can I help her? That's really what the Endless Endeavor is about. It's called the Endless Endeavor because generationally the family will continue forever and ever. You continuously do the best you can for future generations. And, and every parent, like no matter when they're born, that one thread of hope is that, you know, your life will be better than mine when they're looking at their kids. Yes. And so when you say the images are stacked, you mean sort of like I've, I've seen the prints, but for people who haven't, you know, you're using this, these icons to represent different family members, different concepts, and they're, they're literally stacked, like as if they're balancing on each other, kind mm-hmm. of from the floor to the ceiling on these eight, eight foot yeah. woodcuts. Yeah. Is, is that right? Yes, yes. And I try to, in some cases, because I, I know what I'm, who I'm talking about and everything. So in some cases, I stack things to look fragile, to like, for the idea of really how fragile all of this is. It really just takes one person to decide, I don't care about anything but me, or I don't, I don't want to try, or I don't want to do this. I don't want to. And, and that attitude sends the whole thing crumbling down and starting over. So they're literally stacked. It's one object on top of the next, on top of the next, on top of the next. Um, because I think whether we realize it or not, we're really standing on the shoulders of people that are going underappreciated. The only reason I'm in America and I'm able to be a full-time artist is because my grandfather somehow had the courage at 19 to leave his friends, family, everything that he knew to come to a country because it was better for his, like the future generation. He yeah. was like, I don't, there's no opportunity here. There's nothing. And I'm just going to go for it. And, and so many times I forget that. And the Endless Endeavor of doing this project and spending the time has really cemented that in my mind of like my existence is owed to people who in society's eyes will, are probably lesser than me, you know, because mm. you can kind of look and go, oh, that person's a laborer, that person's this mm. or that. But because of those people's sacrifice, I'm able to have these opportunities. I'm able to be in America. I'm able to be a full-time artist. I'm able to have these shows and travel and, and really live out my dream. I couldn't do this if he wouldn't have come to America. It would have been impossible. And I know from from chatting with you before that the kind of challenges that your grandfather faced were just things that I think anyone in our generation, you know, we would just be like, we would face one of them and it'd be like, well, that didn't work. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Um, but I wonder if you want to, if you want to speak to that, because it's it's kind of incredible just the different things that he went through, even to be established enough to to give his children a better life here. Well, my grandfather went through a lot of a lot of crazy stuff that, like you said, I'm I was when I hear about it, I'm just like, where did you find the strength to keep going, dude? Like, I would have quit. Uh, two of the things that I think about a lot is um, one one time when he first came here, he was illegal and he wanted to kind of move up and what he was doing he was a like a laborer you know he was laying cement and stuff like that on a bridge project and he wanted to move up and be like a supervisor or something so he was working as hard as he could mm-hmm. and he'd show up early and he would do stuff um and you work in crews and the other guys were kind of getting upset that he was like outworking them they were, he was making them look bad and they found out that he was illegal and they figured that the best solution was to just tell somebody that he was illegal get rid of them and then they don't have to they don't look bad anymore so that's what they did. And he got deported literally for just working hard, like mm. just trying his best with this job. And he got sent back to Mexico. And I can only imagine like waking up and just being there and being like, what on earth? Like I was doing the best that I could and just getting thrown back. And that's something that and I I, know, I understand that he was elite, and I understand that, you know, there are laws and, and stuff like that. But I, I also don't understand because he is a human being. And this is just it's all kind of. It's just earth. Like, I, I don't want to sound like super hippie-ish, but mm. I, 
and and the piece that is about him is actually titled illegal human because when you say something like that you understand the absurdity and i feel like we use different titles and different things like that to dehumanize people right we say immigrants or refugees but you don't call them human beings because if you did that everybody would feel sympathy because it's the truth they're human mm -hmm. beings you know so it's titled illegal human just because i can only imagine the things that he went through of, of also just not understanding 19 he's younger than me yeah i'm not sure i would be understanding i would probably just be angry at the world like i'm just i'm trying so hard and they don't want me there because of where i was born because i was born a few miles too south i can't partake and all of this stuff, like despite, it's like I'm not a human being. And it's it's crazy. Like part of it that I think about is I read an article a few days ago, I guess, that was, that was pointing out, you know, when you look at this from a colonial perspective as well, the people of Mexico have always been here. And then mm -hmm. in just in the last couple hundred years, the colonizers came in and said, all right, there's a line here now. You're not allowed to cross yeah. it. You know, and you, yeah, and you look at the millennia of history before that, and that's not to say that indigenous people didn't have their own territories and all of that, but speaking to that particular line, you know, that, that, that one that is the focus of so much drama and pain and atrocities and all of these awful things that have been happening thanks to policies um, in the Trump administration, that's the line that we're talking about now, and that's the one that the people who, who came in with the... Yeah, just, oh, man, oh, I'm getting mad. Okay. <laughs> but I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah, just that, that, yes, that yes. is, that is like, that is something that happened um, by the invading colonizers to create that particular line that now people are suffering from. So it's, it is, it is, um, it is extremely complex, as I think, you, you know, you've touched on that, you know, that, that idea is like, okay, yes, like, it is technically illegal to do that. That is someone breaking a law. Um, but it's so much more than that as well. And that there's histories and families and all kinds of things to, to keep in mind. So, yeah. And then so that's sort of the, the imagery. And then the blocks are installed and they're actually installed outside, right? So they're not even actually yes. inside a building there. They're things that, you know, anyone could see if they wanted to walk by the building. Yeah, yeah, they're... Um... They're on the outside of the Art Center of Corpus Christi, and they sealed the block somehow. I don't know how, but I went out there for the ribbon cutting, and uh, when I got into town, I saw them for the first time, and they were like gleaming and shiny, and uh, I could touch them, and they're like, uh, they're like almost waxy, so they're protected, and they're outside 24/7, 365 days a year. They're they're there, um, rain shine, so you can see them anytime. And those are the blocks, and the prints I have with me. And my wife and I are actually um, taking care of all the solo shows right now. So we're touring them around and we've got some shows planned. Um, we actually just finished the first solo show here in Dallas at the Mildy Gallery. And that ran for about a month. And that was really good. We had really good responses. And it's, it's fun to get all of them in one room because, you know, like you said, they're, they're massive. They're mm -hmm. eight feet high, four feet wide. And when you get all of them next to each other, I mean, it just swallows you. It's like an insulation unless you walk in and, I mean, the wall is gone. It's like disappeared. The prints are so big. And it's, it's incredible to see them together like that. And then chronologically, um, and it, it's just, it's great to be able to like share that story and give those artists talks because I, I feel like it's an important message, especially in like the social climate of today. I think that it's something that needs to be said and talked about and, you know, brought up. Yeah. And how long were you working on the project? I worked on that thing for, I think, like 18 months or something like that. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. At the beginning, I had a budget, so um, I could, you know, I hired some people and I had some volunteers, and that's when we were really moving. Like, I had, I was able to, like, hey, you do this, you do this, and we were able to, like, fly through the thing. But I was irresponsible with the money, and uh, budget ran up, so <laughs> I did it all myself. And uh, yeah, so I did that for a while. I had an apprentice named Braulio, and he helped me so much. That's how long I was on this thing. Is he started and finished like a full apprenticeship with me, um, and the, we were working on the blocks the whole time. And he's really an incredible printmaker now. People should totally go follow him. He's insane. Yeah, he so he helped me a lot. I and through all of that happening, it was about eighteen months of me working on that project on and off, with the bulk of the work happening in the last like probably four months 
when it when it was you know you you know when you're approaching a deadline and you're like oh I really got to do this and you know mm-hmm. you hit that gap you have this you have this like extra gear that you didn't know was there that you kind of shift into totally and- I think that's a good place to kind of close up for for the time being but where can people find out more about you see your work I know we mentioned your Instagram and your website um, but do you want to drop any names of some galleries or maybe even some places in some cities where people could uh, see what Casa Press is up to if you're in Dallas you can go to Rec Shop if you're in Fort Worth you can go to Q if you're in uh, Austin you can go to Apparition it's like right in University Square that's a cool shop in San Antonio you can go to Alta Vista mm-hmm. which is a really cool shop right downtown on Broadway Street in Santa Fe New Mexico you can go to Echo Mano which is also where I'm having a solo show at the end of this month Excellent. so I'm not sure when it's gonna air but um, um, at the end of this month I think like on the 26th is uh, the opening and then the show will run into you know July so that'll be that and then, and that's the endless endeavor. So you can actually go and see that. And then afterwards, we're bringing the show back to Texas, and we're going to be down at, at the Art Center of Corpus Christi, where the blocks are, for my third and final solo show of the year. And you can catch the endless endeavor there too. And then that one um, is going to be August twenty eighth through September twenty eighth. I'll put all of like links to all of that in the show notes, along with the dates where you can come and see the blocks in person. And yeah, thank you so much for braving the the apocalypse of data and power in Dallas and having this parking lot conversation. Um, it was yeah. really great, and I, I hope we can do it again and just dive into more of the of all the good stuff. I would love that. All right, talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Tanikia Word, a Milwaukee-based visual artist printmaker and educator whose work centers around black geographies, exploring Afrofuturism, black aesthetics, black hair, black identity, and black woman and girlhood. She's also the founder of Black Women of Print, a space where intergenerational black women printmakers can come together. We had an incredible chat and you will not want to miss this one. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.